Good morning, ECC. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we are going to be in verses 11 to 32 today of Luke chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I wonder, uh, have you ever had a lost and found cabinet or a lost and found room? Maybe it was in your school or in your high school, um, a place where things that were lost could be taken and those who want to find their lost items could go look for them there. That was the kind of context I grew up, especially in primary school or elementary school. We always had a lost and found room. Now, how it would work is uh, uh, the beginning of the year in my school, in my country, was very hot. January, February, those were very hot months. So typical six, seven, eight-year-old kids, you had to go to school in your school uniform with a sweater. But after about 9.30, children would take off their sweaters and leave that sweater wherever they took them off, and life would just continue. So the lost and found room between the months of January to about June was packed with sweaters. Around June, when it would get cold, that lost and found room suddenly had no more sweaters because everyone went looking back for their sweater. Between the months of June, July, August, September, when we opened school again and it was warm, back to usual. Lost and found room, jam-packed with sweaters. You see, the, the sweaters didn't actually have value for us, right? They were only valuable in as far as they keep us warm. So when you don't keep us warm, meh, I can afford to lose you. When I need you, I'll find you. In the story we are about to read, <laughs> you will see that unlike the sweater, there was a son who wanted to be lost and had no intention of being found. In fact, this story we are about to read is probably the most famous parable Jesus ever told, the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. And what I hope you see is the main character here is not actually the prodigal son, but the father. The main character is not the one who gets lost, but the one who finds. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 15, we'll read from verse 11 to 32. I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Luke chapter 15 from verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active, and sharper than a double-edged sword. Almighty God, would you please help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. So now, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick recap. Earlier, last week in this chapter, we saw that Jesus was at a dinner, and one of the biggest complaints the Pharisees had with him is that this man eats with sinners and tax collectors, and he receives them. That was the indictment. And so Jesus tells three parables, tells this set of parables to address the Pharisees particularly. The first story is that of the lost sheep. The second was the lost coin. And now the lost son. And they're all trying to make the same point, but every time it's amplifying it, right? So in the story of the lost sheep, he has 100 sheep and you lose one. Okay, so in terms of percentage, what is one lost sheep versus 99? What percent is that? What is the lost sheep? It's not a trick question. One percent, right? So you've lost one percent of your sheep. That's kind of bad, but meh, negligible. 
in the story of the lost coin, she lost one of her 10 coins. What percentage is that of the lost? You've lost 10% of your money. That's still, that's painful, but, you know, we can live with that. And those stories have these kind of inanimate things. But this story is personal. This is family business. Everyone has a mother, a father, a brother, a sister. This one runs deep. You might have lost 1% of your sheep, 10% of your money, but here is about to explain what happens when you lose 50% of your sons. The ante has been upped, if you will. And so we jump into the story, and the first thing you see is this rebellious younger brother. Look there with me. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, that idea of younger is he was probably in his late teens or early 20s. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Pause. Throughout this story, you and I need to take off our kind of individualistic, common sense, economic eyes and read this story with highly moralistic, honor-shame culture eyes. Basically, try and take yourself back 2,000 years ago and in this culture, in a highly moralistic, high honor shame culture, you can't read those words as he asked for his inheritance. Because you and I would read that and be like, okay, maybe that makes sense. He's a young man. He wants to start out. He wants to take the money, invest it properly, invest in his future, maybe even help with his future dowry or something, start a business, make good returns on his money. That is not what anyone in this culture had. You asked your living father, for your inheritance? What he was essentially saying to his father is, Dad, you're most useful to me if you were dead. I wish you were dead because your usefulness to me has expired. What I need from you is my inheritance. That's what he was saying. He wished his father dead. And you see, Deuteronomy chapter 21 had already told them how the wealth was going to be distributed, how the inheritance was to be distributed. The older son was to get two-thirds. The younger son was to get one-third. And here comes the younger son while his dad is still alive and says, give me what's mine. Give me the cash. Give me the property. Give me the money. You are dead to me. Quite literally. To that, to that extent whereby if he got this property and five or ten years after this, his father actually died, his response could have been, yeah, you know, what, what I needed from him I got. He's dead to me. I'm done with him. Not only was this son saying, I wish you dead, very literally, to that family and to that father, this son would be dead to them. It's as though he never existed. Because once he got what was, quote-unquote, his, and the arrogance of this, give me what's coming to me. Once he got it, done. No need for a relationship, nothing. They are dead to each other. Not only that, this was social suicide. <laughs> Remember, this is a community. You pulled a stunt like this. You asked your living father for your inheritance. The whole community had something to say about it. You see, you weren't a child of your father. You are a child of the community. There's no such thing as this is my son. No, no, this is our son. The shame he brought to his father would be not only on his family, it would be on the entire community. That entire village, that entire town, it was social suicide for him. He would be dead to all of them. 
by saying, give me my inheritance, he's not only saying, dad, you're dead to me. He's saying, I want nothing to do with you, dad. I want nothing to do with this family. And I want nothing to do with this village. I'm done with this. This is, this is social suicide. In a communal context. Now, for a second there, can you imagine how painful that was for the father to hear? Your younger son, who you love, who you've raised, who you've laughed with and played with, you just realized this guy has no interest in a relationship with you. He wants your stuff, doesn't want you. Wants nothing to do with you. You don't need to be a dad to know that'll hurt. So this son of the community says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, when Jesus' listeners heard that, they were like, oh, this boy is about to get whooped. He's about to get smacked, which is what was expected. If you told your dad that, the next thing is one. And whatever inheritance you thought I was going to give you, in fact, I'm not giving you. And, the, and the, the smacking, the whooping, the beat down wouldn't just be between you and your father. No, 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 it's a community, so the whole community would be in on it. The way some of us grew up, and I know this is true of many of you, and I remember this happened to me when I, when I was growing up, if I did something wrong and the neighbor saw me, the neighbor would whoop me. And the worst thing the neighbor could tell me is, I'm going to tell your, uh, hey, your mother. Suddenly, your negotiation skills become very good. You're like, no, let's discuss. What do you need me to do? I can mow your lawn. Let's, let's figure this out. Because if he tells your mother, the first thing she will do is not say, how dare you beat my son? No, she'll be like, he did what? Come here. <laughs> and once she tells your mother, and you've been whooped by her, and whooped by your mom, now you know you're in real trouble. Because she will patiently wait for your dad to walk in. And when he does, the first words out of her mouth will be, do you know what your son did today? Ding, ding, round three. <laughs> and there's no way around that. You are a child of the community. This guy says, Dad, I wish you were dead. And in the same chapter of scripture that says how the inheritance is supposed to be distributed, here's what it says about how you should deal with stubborn, rebellious children. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Yeah. That's what should have been done to this young man. So everyone listening to Jesus is like, oh, it's about to go down. He might not be stoned, but he's about to get a legendary beat down. And so Jesus pauses there. That's why there's a full stop in your Bible. And the next words out of his mouth would have made his audience audibly gasp. While they're expecting the beat down, here's what Jesus says. After the son has said, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Pause. And he divided his property between them. 
people would have been in an uproar. Like, there's no way. There's no way. You don't reward that kind of arrogance. You beat that kind of arrogance out of the child. You don't give him the very thing he's demanding. You show him who's boss. But in this story, Jesus says no. And he divided his property between them. Here's the thing. When the son asks for his property, he says, give me the property. That word property there means give me the cash. Give me the cash. But here a different word is used. Speaking of the father, that the father divided his property, that word for property is the word bios. Where you get the word biology from? Life, livelihood, living. Directly translated, it means the father divided his life to the son. You see, for this culture, and still many cultures, even to date, your whole life was tied into your estate. For the son, this is just cash. For the father, this is his life. This is his life's work. This is his ancestry. His identity is tied into this. In my rural home, and I'm sure many of your rural homes, when you go back home, they'll ask you, what's your name? You'll say, and the first thing they ask you after that is, where are you from? Because whatever land you say, they say, ah, we know you people. We know what you're like. Your identity is tied into that. This father tore, rent, gave, divided his very life to this son. Again, can you imagine the pain? <laughs> the first pain is the pain of hearing your son say, I want nothing to do with you. I just want your stuff. I don't want any relationship with you. You are dead to me. The second layer of pain is you just lose your status, your standing, your dignity, your life in this community. And the son is happy to take it. And surprisingly, verse 13, not many days later, that's an old way of saying as quick as possible, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. I mean, he quickly runs out of this, this town because he's like, I want nothing to do with you guys. He's out, and it says he goes to a far country. That's not just geographical, that's metaphor. You see, he has already shown that his heart is distant from the Father. And now, he is physically doing what his heart already wanted to do all along. The posture of his heart was to be far from his Father, to distance himself from the Father. And now, physically, he distances himself from the Father. He goes as far as possible from the father. And while off in this foreign far country, and there he squandered his cash or his property in reckless living. That word squandered is where you get the word prodigal from. Prodigal is an old English word for reckless, foolish, extravagantly silly, wasteful living. And that's what he does. He squanders the property on wild and reckless living thinking he's the man, blows through this town, throwing money around. And scripture tells us later that he actually spent a lot of this money on prostitutes and the associated lifestyle. That's what he's doing with the money. Then the next line says in verse 14, and when he had spent everything, I'm sorry, when he had spent everything, which you'd expect of someone his age, like you didn't think this through, did you? They say of that the teenage brain, that the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain associated with executive decision-making, is still forming, which is why on one day, 
They, these teenagers will, will exhibit the most mature, impressive, deep behavior. And then on Tuesday, the next day, you're wondering, what? Just the most foolish decisions ever, right? That's this guy. My, my lecturer used to say, the teenage brain is like, it decides I'm going to take a walk, it starts walking, and the middle it says, meh. That's what this guy does. I'm going to get the money, I'm going to take the money, I'm going to use the money. Meh. He spent it all. And here's where you start seeing he takes a few hits. The first hit, the first blow, the first repercussion of his rebellion is from his own foolishness. He spent all the money. The second blow is a severe famine arose. So his foolishness is the problem. First problem, he now has nothing. Second problem is not his fault. It's actually as a result of God's providence. A severe famine falls in this foreign land that he's in. Now, you and I might not fully understand a famine or may, may not have really lived through one, but they are really bad. In Ethiopia, between 1983 and 1985, a famine killed 7.75 million people in a population of 38 million. That's basically 20% of the population. In my country, between 1880 and 1890, a famine wiped out one-third of the Kamba community. And that's a community that is used to hardship used to living in arid areas, but they were literally swept away. Basically, in a famine, every day you wake up, someone or something is dying multiple times a day. Animals are dying, people are dying, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no food, there's no water. And what people are forced to do is unimaginable. So it's foolishness, is the first blow. The famine, second blow. And scripture says, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Literally translated, he glued himself or he joined himself to a citizen of that country because he's a foreigner with no rights in this country, apparently. So he glues himself. Basically, he sticks to this guy. And this guy sends him to feed his pigs. <laughs> now everybody knew this was a Jew. And this guy sent him to feed the pigs. Everybody knew Jewish dietary laws. He knew Leviticus 11 and the dietary laws. And he's now been sent to pigs. Think about that. If an Arab, if an Emirati came to you for employment, would you send them to feed pigs? You know enough about this culture to know that that is deeply insulting. Ah, but remember, this young man walked through this town blowing his money. And you're thinking, oh, wait, you're that guy who used your money to make our sons immoral. You're that guy who made our daughters immoral and made them prostitutes and used them. Ah, you want to work now? Great. Go feed my pigs, boy. He's in a bad state. And clearly, he's either not being paid or being paid really badly because he doesn't have food. He, he's literally longing to eat what the pigs are eating. <laughs> He's basically become one of the pigs. And in that pain, he comes to the end of himself. And I wonder if that person is in this room right now. That in your pursuit of pleasure and power and position, you're coming to the end of yourself. In fact, there's an interesting line here that says in verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pigs, what the pods of the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. <laughs> no one gave him anything. What happened to all these friends you were partying with? 
There's a someone right in there. Uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 4 puts it this way. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. He has been deserted. No power, no pleasure, no pals, nothing. Is that you? In your pursuit of power, pleasure, money, pals, you're realizing they're all gone or they're all fake, that you're beginning to come to the end of yourself. My unbelieving friend, is your life hard and it tempts you to rail against God? Why is he making my life hard? Could it be that God is actually trying to get your attention? That all these other things that you thought would fulfill you have failed because that's what sin does. Sin always lies about its benefits. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin always makes you think this is the thing you need to be happy in life and the more you pursue it, the less happier you are. In fact, it enslaves you. You are worse now than you were before you started. Is that you? The blessing is, in God trying to get your attention, like he was trying to get this young man's attention, now might be the time you need to get real with yourself. Because that's what happens here in verse 17. Verse 17 says, but he came to himself. <laughs> he came to his senses. In other words, he got real with himself. He realized he doesn't have problems. He is the problem. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish, I die here with hunger. You see, he was already literally socially dead. He was dead to his father, dead to his family. Now, he was physically dying. <laughs> he was quite literally about to be dead. And now you see his repentance. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. I will turn away from this. I will turn my back on this silly dissolute, licentious, wasteful life, and I will go back to my father. Something about his father made him know he could do that. One thing you don't see about the father is no one ever says, you're an abusive dad, that's why I'm leaving. No. I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, listen to this speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. His primary concern is not just I sinned against my father and my family. Who does he say he has sinned against first? Heaven, which is Luke's way of saying God. He recognizes that the primary offense has been given to the heavenly father and then to his earthly father. The primary problem with sin is never horizontal, it's vertical. I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is him practicing the speech and he says... Treat me as you would one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. Think about this guy's journey. Once he decides, okay, I'm leaving the pigs. I'm leaving this silliness. I'm going to go back to my father. Think about that journey. You know he's not receiving any rides. No one's offering him a camel or a donkey. He has no friends left. You're going to hoof it. You're going to walk from here until your destination. He's covered in the smell and the sight of pigs. 
torn clothes, covered in dirt, looks like and smells like one of the pigs, takes the arduous and painful journey home, and with each step, he still doesn't change his mind. He has turned. He has repented. And in that smelly, stinky, disgusting state, verse 20 says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he was still coming, his elder dad, his elderly father, runs toward him, moved by compassion. He sees the state his son is in. He's fully aware of it and runs toward him. Now, you have to understand, in these patriarchal cultures, where the men were the leaders of families, they just didn't run, man. Running was for children and youth. Women, maybe, but the fathers never did that. Their kanduras, if you will, their robes would reach the ground, and they basically kind of just glided across the Middle East. <laughs> now, here's a dad in his maybe 50s or 60s, elder gentleman. Can you imagine one of the sheikhs of this country running? How would you run? You can't run with that skirt. You have to pick up the thing and run. He's showing off his legs. He's completely undignified in a culture that is highly moralistic and on a shame. He's bringing shame upon himself, but he doesn't care. He's seen his son, and he runs toward him. And scripture says he embraced him, direct, directly translated, he fell on his neck. And kissed him. That, that phrase kissed is in the imperfect tense. He just kept kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. If you forget everything about God, remember this. He's the God who kisses filthy sinners. He's the God who sees them coming from a long way away. And doesn't even wait for them to come. He's the God who is undignified in his pursuit of sinners. And throws his arms around them and kisses them and kisses them and kisses them and kisses them. The hero of this story is the father who receives the son. And verse 31 said, And the son said to him in his rehearsed speech, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he gets interrupted. He gets interrupted. Because the last line was, Make me like one of your hired servants. Right? Make me like one of your hired servants. What was he intending with that? See, a hired servant wasn't like a slave. A slave is someone who used to live in the house, a bond servant, if you will, used to live in the house. They would get fed in the house. They would sleep in the house. He's saying, I don't even want to be that. <laughs> I want to be a hired servant. That was a day worker. I'll go live somewhere in town. Even if I sleep on the street, it's fine. But I will come work for you. And whatever you would have paid me, allow it to be restitution to come back. Because you couldn't just walk back into the community and be accepted. That's not how a highly moralistic, unashamed culture works. You have to make restitution. You brought shame upon this family. You have to work so that this shame is taken out. You embarrassed your father. You undignified your father. You have to work that out. That has to be taken away. Your brother over here, your siblings, whatever it is, your servants, this whole home has been shamed because of you. You don't just get to walk in here. No, no, no. You make restitution. You earn your way back. You work your way back, and he's ready to do it. I will make restitution for my sin. 
But before he can say that line, what does the father do? Interrupts him. And the father says, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes. Why? The robe was a symbol of his status. Covered, not in shame. The ring was a signet ring. That was your symbol of authority. See, at this time, no one used to sign contracts. They had a ring, a family ring, and you'd use the ring to do business. You'd put it in wax and do business with that. So everyone knows this family has done it. If he's being given a ring, that means he has the authority of a son in that home. And shoes, because slaves would walk around barefoot. But sons and free men would be in shoes. Child of God, you realize this is you. <laughs> you, filthy, stinking, in dirt and sin and shame, were met by the Father who threw his arms around you and kissed you and kissed you and kissed you and covered you in the robes of righteousness, took away your filthy garments of sin and shame, quite literally gave you beauty instead of ashes, called you a son in his family, a free man, a king, a priest in his kingdom forever. Your status, secure, unchangeable, eternal. That's the picture here. The father is an obvious picture of God, the younger, prodigal, lost son, a picture of rebellious sinners and a picture of Gentiles who have left God. And after he's been dressed, verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. There's that same joy we saw in the last two parables. The father's dominant emotion is joy. Why? Here's the raison d'etre, if you will, the main reason. For this son, this my son, he's not ashamed to call him my son. Eh? My son was dead and is alive, was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is the joy of the father, to find the lost, to find lost sinners like you and like me. And unbeliever, if you're in this room, you're probably going, that can't be right. So he just walks back in, and everything is fine? Now, you, you have a point. You have a point. For you and I, Covered in our sin and dirt and shame, we couldn't just receive robes, receive a ring, receive shoes. Someone else had to make restitution. When you and I had scorned God and told him, you are dead to me. Scripture says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When you and I had done that, whether literally or in our hearts, every sinner has done that, God himself gave himself through his son, Jesus Christ, to come looking for you. This son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, had actual righteousness because he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was quite literally crucified, whipped, bled, and died. And with his dying breath said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he rose again three days later. Victoriously rose again. As 
knowledge that the sacrifice for sin, for your sin, had fully been accepted, and now offers that forgiveness because he made the restitution. He took your mess. If you will turn away from sin, like this guy, turn your back on your self-indulgent rebellion, turn your back on all the things you think will bring you fulfillment, and say, I will go back to my father. He will embrace me in his arms and kiss me and kiss me because I have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, and turned away from my sin. So at that point, you think the story is over. This is great. Restoration has happened. Ah, but that was just the younger son. Verse 25 says, now the older son was in the field. See, if the younger son is a picture of wayward sinners and Gentiles, the father is a picture of God, who do you think the older brother is? The Pharisees. And Judaism and Jews who are running away from God in their religion. This older brother who is in the field, unlike his younger brother who was in the field wasting away, this older brother is in the field, his family's field, working. And he's, he notices his music and dancing and he asks the servant, hey, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother's come back. Your father's killed the fattened calf. And he has, keyword, received him. That's the thing that bugged Pharisees. How dare you receive sinners? And how do you know this elder brother is a Pharisee? What is his, re his reaction to the news that his brothers come back in verse 28? But he was what? Angry. Angry. Remember someone we talked about a few weeks ago who was also really angry that God had saved people? Remember his name? What was his name? Jonah. The Pharisees are the first century Jonah. And you know you can excuse Jonah, right? Because at least for Jonah, he got mad because God saved their enemies. This guy is mad because God saved your brother? Because the father has received your brother? That's why you're mad? And then don't miss this line. And he refused to go in. He refused to enter this banquet. This family feast that had been thrown by his father, he was not going to enter in. He was going to have none of it. And that's when it hits you. <laughs> this isn't just the story of a lost son. This is the story of two lost sons. It's not the story of a lost son, but of lost sons. They are lost in different ways. By refusing to go in, he says, I want nothing to do with the father. I will have nothing to do with that man who receives sinners. I will have nothing to do with that man and this family that can't tell the difference between me, who's righteous, and him, who's rebellious. Both of them didn't want the father. Do you see it? One rejected the father by being rebellious. The other rejected the father by being religious. There's two basic ways to run away from God. By being very, very bad or by being very, very good. One son wanted nothing to do with the father by going away. He just wanted the father's stuff. The other son wanted the father's stuff by staying. If I stay long enough, I'll get the stuff and he'll be gone. 
That's the attitude of this older brother. In fact, remember who Jesus is talking to, who his main audience is? The Pharisees. This story is designed to show you there's a problem with the older brother. And this older brother refuses to go in and in typical father fashion, the father comes out and entreated him, pleads with him. But he answered his father. Look at how he answered his father. Look. Doesn't even call him father. Like, look, boss, chief. In my country, we say, you. Turns out, it's not just the younger brother who's rude. Look, these many years, I have served you. Directly translated, I have slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. Here's, here's the, two, the two things to note about that. Firstly, the father killed a fattened calf for the son, right? In this culture, you didn't just kill fattened calves. They very rarely ate meat. If you did eat meat, maybe birds, maybe a goat, on occasion a sheep, but there was only one thing that was reserved for fattened calves, a wedding feast. Which means, if there's a fattened calf being killed in this communal culture, the whole village is showing up. Everyone is coming to celebrate this. And he's there thinking, first of all, this fattened calf is part of my inheritance. Right? Secondly, you're going to celebrate him? Are you kidding me? You're celebrating the guy who squandered our wealth. And he said, you didn't even give me a, a, a small goat, a young goat, to celebrate with my what? My friends. Notice how the father is absent from that party. He doesn't want the father. Happy to do it with his friends. Doesn't want the father. He says, but when this son of yours, he, he wouldn't even call him my brother. Like when this guy, this son of yours, he refuses to acknowledge him as his brother. The only people who call the younger son my, your brother are the father and the servants. This son of yours comes. You kill the fattened calf for him. You see, what the elder brother had missed is we are not celebrating your younger brother's sin. No. We are celebrating the fact that he's back. He was very literally dead. He's now alive. Guys, when a believer comes, when an unbeliever rather comes to trust in Christ and believes in him, you recognize he was dead in his transgressions and now has been made alive. That's worth celebrating. That's why we celebrate at baptisms, because we are rejoicing over what God has done. That's why we celebrate at membership, because we are like, look at these trophies of God's grace. The Pharisees are marked by a lack of joy. They're even angry that people are getting saved. The lack of joy inside the elder brother makes him very suspicious of joy outside of him. You know one of those guys who's just very terrified and stressed that someone somewhere might be having a good time? That's this guy. He's proving that he doesn't know the father. He has not understood him. He has no relationship, and his words betray that he wants no relationship with him. They are both lost, just in different ways. And the father's response to this 
rude older son is, verse 31, and he said to him, son, literally, my boy. I would have smacked this guy if I'm being honest with you. But he says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You know that's literally true, right? <laughs> the son, the, the younger son had taken a third. Everything else that remained there belonged to the elder brother. Everything here is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Why? Your brother was dead. He's now alive. He was lost. He's now found. This is the, you have to see the hero here is the father. This is the guy who sits waiting for a wayward son to come home and rejoices as he. Tell the truth, man. If one of your children had done this, squandered the wealth, embarrassed you, would you be sitting there waiting for him like, oh, let him come? Or would you be sitting there like, eh, hey, here he comes. I have something waiting for you. The sticks are ready. Come. Let me call some more men. We'll sort you out. Come. The father is waiting. And that same compassion, love, and gentleness is shown to the elder brother, the one who refuses to come in and is now embarrassing his dad in front of the whole village. He says, please, come. And then the story is left on a cliffhanger. It's not resolved, which was designed to do a couple of things. Firstly, the listeners would be left thinking, wait, the younger, rebellious, rude, repugnant brother, that's the one who got saved? And the older brother, the morally upright, didn't? Yeah. But the other thing he wants to leave us with is an invitation. He's still telling the older brother, older brother, come, come home. Your brother came home physically. You're refusing to get in. I'm telling you, my son, come home. Believer in Jesus Christ, it's very easy for us to see ourselves as a younger brother. But I think if you're being honest with each other, there's a whole lot of the older brother in us. You and I have to be very careful because the sin of seeming godly without actually being godly is very attractive. Hypocrisy is very, very attractive. Let me ask it this way. How would your life be different if this week you are more interested in being godly than in appearing godly? If you are more concerned with what's going on in your heart before God and before God's people, then you are concerned with dressing right and looking right and acting right, like the elder brother. I pray that you would hear your father invite you to not only repent of your sins, but to repent of your quote-unquote righteousness, of the things you think will impress him, of the things you think will earn your way back into his heart. So a couple of thoughts as we close. 
in this story, given how fractured the relationship between the father and the younger brother is, when that whole relationship came crumbling and collapsed, who do you think was supposed to go looking for the younger brother? Talk to me. The older brother. <laughs> One of the ways you know he's not a good older brother is he didn't go looking. Didn't bother. The reason Christ saved us is so that we would be good elder brothers. That we would go looking for the younger brother. That we would go looking for the lost who have squandered and wasted their lives. And secondly, I pray that we would be a church that restores the repentant gently. That when we have done the hard work, the painful work of excommunicating and putting someone out of membership whose life has shown they want nothing to do with the Father, when they eventually come back, that we would be marked by joy, not suspicion. Because the older brother's reaction to someone who made a mess and came back would be, yeah, I'll give you three months and see how that works. But the father's reaction is robe, ring, shoes, received, redeemed, welcomed, that we would find our deepest joys in that. I pray that you and I would see finding the lost is one of the main reasons we are alive. That if we are not about doing that, we might be living a good life, but we are not living our best life. Because this, you want to have joy? Oh, go look for the lost. And the Father's joy will flood your heart. I pray that we would prepare for the feast to come. That's what Holy Communion is about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. We are tasting it with our, our mouths physically because we know someday we will enter the eternal feast where there is unbelievable, unimaginable joy. For those of you who later might be coming to Al-Wahda, I just, I dare you, talk to each other about how God saved you. You will be stunned at the joy you will receive. And lastly, unbeliever in the room, the Father is calling you home. When I was younger, a song that they taught us that I pray you hear with the ears and heart of faith used to say, Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he is waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active, that even now is calling sinners home. Would you help us redeemed sinners come home by repenting of our hypocrisy, like the elder brother? Would you call those of us who have not come home in their rebellion to come home like the younger brother, through your son Jesus Christ, knowing that they will be received, robed, put a ring on, and shod as free men and free women in the kingdom of our God. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.